Welcome back to the Exit Vila podcast. I'm Adam Cohen, alongside Henry Winklehake and Ben Rossi. Fellas, we have a ton of awards to talk about. We have a ton of things to talk about, too. There's so much happening in baseball. The hot stove is just getting started, and hopefully it will continue for the rest of the offseason as well. Yeah, man, life is good. Usually kind of this uh, couple of weeks after the World Series, maybe a little bit of a lull. I mean, you know, you got like the qualifying offers and everything, but I feel like we have more news than, than usual this time of year. Yeah, definitely, for sure. But there's also a, a lot more uncertainty than usual about like the future of the baseball season. It just so happens that the that the most uncertain one of the most uncertain off seasons that we've had at this point, not knowing like when COVID's gonna let up and when we're gonna have another season, and then not to mention baseball having a collective bargaining agreement expiring. We're just just it just is we're just in a lot of uncertainty too with the game. So I mean, it's a lot of excitement, but also a lot of interesting uncertainty. And it also seems like just because of COVID and perhaps more playoff teams as a whole, there could be more free agents, there could be more trades. And because of a couple of qualifying offers off the board, which we'll talk to and talk about in a little bit, uh, Marcus Stroman and Kevin Gosman, the free agent and trade market might be even more larger than last year. I'm, I'm interested to see it, uh, but I, I have kind of heard some speculation around the league too that um, with the collective bargaining agreement looming that Ben alluded to there that I think teams are expected to kind of be pinching their pennies and, and holding on, not giving out a whole lot of huge money in a free agency. We've kind of seen that uh, trend for the last couple of years playing out, but certainly I, I think the trade market could could still be hot and maybe you don't have to worry about uh, as much with player movement going city to city during the off season, kind of you have built in time to quarantine and everything. Yeah, that definitely could be a possibility, but to start off, we are going to talk about some great news that happens today. The first female and Asian-American GM in MLB's history is now the GM of the Miami Marlins. So kudos to Marlins to signing Kim, Kim Ang to that deal. And Kim Ang is a baseball lifer. She's worked for 30 years. She won, a, she won three rings with the Yankees as the assistant GM. She's been around since the 90s with the White Sox. And... Fellas, how important, how great is this for the game of baseball? I, I think it's huge, not only for baseball, but for sports as a whole. Definitely a milestone moment. Um, I mean, I mean, I'd say it's it's definitely even bigger than sports. It's it's a huge step in the right direction for equality. And for far too long, I think there's been this mindset that like sports and, and baseball in particular maybe are, are for boys and men just get it more. And I mean, maybe there's some truth to that in the sense that men tend to watch the game more. But I mean, like you said, Adam, this is a baseball lifer uh, that in Kim Ang, someone who's been around the game for a long time and, and seems to be as deserving as anybody for this position. So huge, awesome moment. And I, I'm very happy and, and proud to be a baseball fan and great for the Marlins uh, to be the team that gets it done. I agree. And I think really it's a really great breakthrough for the game of baseball, especially given that this game, a lot, some might argue is behind the curve with their lack of diversity, especially in the front office. But like not only this, but she is more than deserving of the position. Cause looking at her resume, it's impressive because she has been both with various team assistant GMs, but also this past decade, she has worked in the commissioner's office. So I just really can't think of someone who I've seen in a while for a front office position that's looked that deserving too. 
you guys really hit a nail on that one. And as mentioned, she's been assistant GM several times. She's been in the big lead front offices for a while. So it's great to see this happening. And we've been seeing this revolution as well. We're seeing a lot more female coaches and strength and conditioning coaches just come into the forefront as well. So this could be kind of a new age for female baseball lifers. And there's actually an article I, I hope you two read, and I hope that whoever's watching this reads it as well, but it just showed like a history of women in baseball. Like I, I didn't realize until a few weeks ago that there was a woman in the Hall of Fame in FM mainly who helped out with the Negro Elite. So that's really cool. Like that's something you don't hear about at all, which is insane. Or Jackie Mitchell, who was the woman who struck up Babe Roof and Lou Gehrig, or even the first one who was Lizzie Arlington, who played in like the 18, 1898. It's just like there's a so deep history that isn't as looked into. And now because there's more women in there, maybe they'll get some more credit, which is of course really helpful because you know, we all love baseball and always love these new tidbits and important tidbits such as this one. Absolutely. And get the conversation started and, and then get people to look back at that history. And then not only looking back, I'd say looking forward too. that if, if you're a little girl who watches baseball and loves baseball, this, I mean, I think this would be a huge moment that, you can grow up and be whoever you want to be and do whatever you want to do that. And, and I think this is long overdue. I mean, not only from like the equality standpoint, obviously, but just kind of as the baseball has been in this more analytical forward thinking kind of movement that you're limiting your, your options and your potential as a team. If you're only looking at half of the people and you know, the half of the talent out there and, and only looking at males. So I, mean, I think it was only a matter of time and just I love to see it happen. And additionally, we're seeing a lot more diversity program outreach as well. There's an initiative now, I forget what it's called, but it's an initiative to get more African Americans to play baseball as well because they represent a very small minority of the baseball sphere. And there is a lot of Latin Americans, there's a lot of uh, white Americans who are in there and baseball is a decently diverse sport, but definitely with the African-American community that's lacking a little bit and just women in general. So perhaps we're going to see more diversity initiatives as well. And it's not just diversity for diversity's sake. This is, of course, Kim Angson, who's someone who's very deserving. So that's even better because that just proves that, hey, this person deserving, it goes past like the gender or the color barrier. And it's just, she belongs in baseball and she belongs in this position in baseball. Absolutely. And, and another thing I want to make sure we mention as well, not only uh, the first women, uh, first female GM in baseball, the first female GM in, in all of sports. Mm -hmm. So, and it kind of surprising, like we said, baseball, perhaps not as progressive as some of the other uh, major sports leagues. So good on baseball for, for breaking that barrier. I just also want to mention, I mean, from a diversity standpoint, first Asian American too, in, in baseball as a GM. So that's something remarkable that we were able to break that baseball was able to smash so many barriers in one day. And another kind of great revelation or kind of great thing that happened in baseball, at least from a New York Mets standpoint is that Steve Cohen officially bought the Mets, which is awesome for Mets fans because I mean, I remember Q just hating the Wilpons or not being too big of a fan of the Wilpons or just Mets fans in general, but the Wilpons were a disgrace to the Mets. They obviously had their scandals. They weren't maybe as helpful as they could have been. Brody Van Wagenen's out there. He had the pretty awful Cano Diaz deal. So now Steve Cohen's cleaning house and he's been a Mets fan his entire life. He's there to win championships. And already you see the Mets connected to Francisco Lindor and Trevor Bauer, which is something that we're not used to seeing from the Mets connected to these big free agents right off the bat. So perhaps finally they can bring the Mets back to the playoffs.
and definitely exciting news uh, for Mets fans. I think just pretty good for the game in general to, you know, see a team that a good historic team in a big market to see them be successful, which isn't to say we want to, you know, the big market teams to win the World Series every year. But I mean, I think it's it's definitely good for the Mets and I think he's going to make them competitive. I do think people may need to, to, to pump the brakes just a tad. I don't know if he's going to come in and just, you know, make them like World Series favorites overnight and not like you guys were saying that at all or anything, but some Mets fans uh, definitely perhaps a little over the top. And, but, you know, I mean, I would be too if it, it's kind of been a franchise uh, marked by incompetence for a long time. And this, I mean, if there was somebody who could turn it around, it seems like they got the right guy there. I agree. I think Steve Cohen's a great part of it. And it just so happens, I think that this free agent market is actually meant for a team like the Mets. If there's any team that's going to be a real winner in this year's free agency, I would be, I would be actually more shocked if it wasn't the Mets than if it was the Mets. Cause I mean, they have, they have a few needs and like ESPN analysts have pointed out that they're actually the perfect suitors for a lot of the free agents. Cause they need another solid starter. Trevor Bowers there. They need another catcher, JT Realm. Muto's there. So it's so just with Steve Cohen promising that he wants to spend that he wants to spend money and that and him and him explicitly stating I want to be good every year is going to be huge for the Mets and gain their free agent market. And already they're not even that far off from being a great team either because they were plagued by a lot of injuries anyways this past season. So I like so I think over all Mets fans have more than reason to be op more optimistic than they've been in like the past maybe couple decades or so. And another reason for optimism for the Mets is having Marcus Stroman agree to the qualifying offer, which personally I was pretty surprised by because Stroman's been talked about in free agency or upcoming free agency for a long time. He's been an elite ground ball pitcher. He has great composure. He's a little guy too, which personally I'm a big fan of just being five foot three, but he's just awesome and he's just like such a great presence in the game so that's great the Mets signed him that's great that he stayed and I think that was a smart move on his part as well because I don't think he would have made much more than 18.9 million in free agency and having the prospects on his back as well because the Mets would have to give a prospect or two if he were to sign another team so it's a great deal on both sides and same with Kevin Gosman as well because Gosman had a breakout year the Giants wanted a decent starter perhaps they overpaid for him but nonetheless it did work out as well and yeah, I think it is a good move for the Mets to get that qualifying offer, have Stroman back, especially with all the pitching inconsistency and injuries that they've had. I think it makes sense for them to go ahead and try and stockpile arms as, as much as they can. Um, I was a little bit surprised, like you said, Adam, to see Stroman take it. Uh, I mean, usually starting pitchers can, it seems like they always earn a lot more in free agency than I expect them to. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just Stroman coming off the injury and wanting to get something uh, a little more sure, I guess, and playing his chances in free agency. And maybe he's uh, pessimistic about the free agent market as well, like expecting people to not shell out a whole lot of dollars with the, with the CBA agreement coming up. I mean, yeah, I agree. Who can blame Gosman for being pessimistic or Stroman for that matter for being pessimistic about the free agent market? I mean, I just feel like this market especially for guys who aren't the highest value like those two guys i mean because neither of them had like spectacular seasons obviously stroman was injured so his value went has went down dramatically this off season so i think both of the free, free, the, the free agents it's definitely 
a win for both of those guys. And it does it really doesn't surprise me just seeing seeing how teams are likely to be very frugal this year with a lot of their free agent spending in the offseason, probably historically. I know we've alluded to this, but of course the pandemic made all these teams lose money and they also have the luxury tax, new luxury tax, which is a lot more harsh than it used to be. Even a team such as the Yankees, they are going to try to be as conservative as they can. They want to go overboard of the luxury tax because it's, it's more harsh now. It's more prevalent. It doesn't go up as high each year. So they have that, the CBA and pandemic. So sure players who are going to get paid are going to get paid. And the, that includes the rest of the people who declined the qualifying offer. DJ LeMahieu declined, as did George Springer, JT Romuto, and Trevor Bauer. All four of these guys might get around the $100 million area, even in this type of atmosphere and climate and free agency. But those guys are the rare few that can really boast that. Right. And that you took the words out of my mouth there, Adam, that those guys, I think definitely a clear tier ahead of, of the Stroman, Gosman guys that they're going to get paid no matter what the circumstances that their star players like that are, are always going to have a bunch of suitors lining up to fill their pockets. So I think definitely made sense for those guys to decline the qual or decline the qualifying offer, excuse me, try and get something a little bit more long-term and lock up a big payday. So that made sense uh, from that perspective for me. I, none of those moves really uh, surprised me. Yeah, I'm going to agree there. There were a few maybe qualifying offer moves. Like I was a little bit shocked that more players didn't accept their qualifying offer moves, seeing this uncertainty of the free agent market. Like especially there were actually a couple, I mean, for my Oakland A's, there were a couple, uh, we had a couple of guys, I maybe wasn't as shocked about those those guys, but like I just want to mention a couple of our biggest free agents, Marcus Simeon and Liam Hendricks, closer Liam Hendricks, both of those guys denied the qualifying offers this year. And I mean, that, that actually was maybe a little bit less shocking, but I mean, they're not like the highest value free agents, but Marcus Simeon is likely to be like a highly touted shortstop for free agent. And Liam Hendricks, he might be like the one reliever that teams are willing to invest in. So I think, I think in some ways that was interesting. But I, I, so I wasn't surprised about my guys maybe denying the qualifying offers, but I think it was interesting to see maybe not as many like mediocre free agents not decline the decline this qualifying offers. Uh, ben, sorry to correct you a little bit, but Liam Hendricks and Marcus Simeon did not receive a qualifying offer, but they would have been very good candidates because Simeon placed third MVP last year. Liam Hendricks, he's he just won reliever of the year, and he or he was he won it before in the past and he's one of the best relievers in the game. So it's a little surprise to then receive in the first place. But Simeon had a down year. Hendricks is also a reliever and weavers don't usually get paid 18.9 million. So I, I can't say I'm too too surprised he didn't receive one, but especially the cost conservative A's, but it, it is interesting. They could have been candidates maybe on different teams. Yeah, actually you're right about that. Yeah, Liam Hendricks did get reliever of the year this year, by the way. So it was yeah this year so i think but i, th I think it was going to be interesting moving forward to to see like if teams should have more teams should have maybe offered the qualifying offers given what we're going to see yeah i was going to say maybe i would say both of those guys probably should have got one but did the a's not think they're worth what it's, it's like 18.9 million is the qualifying offer I mean, that is a, that's a lot of money for a reliever, but I mean, it's only one year or two. 
But it's got, I don't know, it's going to be tough because part of it is when you look at our bullpen, our bullpen was one of our strongest points this season anyways beyond just Hendricks, although it didn't show in the playoffs when people were, when the eyes were actually watching. So, like, we, we have a lot more other areas that we need to address. Starting pitching, we really, we really need to – we really need to make a lot of dramatic changes to that next season. Then also, I mean, we got to look at our future too. With some of our guys next year, some of our bigger money hitters in the core of our order, like Matt Olson and Matt Chapman, both of them are going to be arbitration eligible next year. So we got to look. So I think it's a good thing with the A's are doing looking out for that though. But I mean, I would love to keep, if, if only circumstances allowed, I would definitely love to keep Liam Hendricks and Simeon. And there's no doubt the green and gold are going to miss them or any team would miss them if they have to get rid of them. They're both players that any team would def would certainly want. The good thing about the qualifying offer is that even if the team doesn't offer it, that doesn't mean they're not trying to resign them. So they can still resign Hendricks, which is I'm sure a great candidate to return to the A's and even Simeon who sure they have some maybe up and coming infield prospects, but Simeon is just one year removed from being third MVP. So they could try to sign them to more of a, a f more of an efficient deal. So it's not out of the question, which is good. And this happens for a lot of teams as well, which is actually one of the reasons why I was kind of surprised by Gosman because Gosman had a 5.92 ERA in 2019. And that was the strangest deal. He had a great season, but that's not who you would typically think to receive a qualifying offer. I was, I was a little bit surprised uh, to see that one as well. I mean, I think it made a lot of sense for Gosman to sign it. Uh, I, didn't uh, totally see that making sense for the Giants, but I mean, I guess they need starting pitching. They don't have a whole lot. It's like Johnny Cueto, who's not that great anymore, and then Jeff Samarjo, who's not that great anymore. And I mean, I don't think Kevin Gosman was really all that great ever in the first place, but I mean, the numbers did get a little bit better for him going to San Francisco, coming out of Baltimore, that terrible environment from a pitcher to the best environment for a pitcher in baseball, I'd say. Maybe Petco Park, too, but top three, no, undebatable, but I mean, it's, I guess the thing is it's only a one-year contract. So if you're a team like the Giants that doesn't really have a whole lot of salary tied up elsewhere, maybe you're in a better position to extend that qualifying offer. That's a very good point. I'd even think of, from, of it as a salary perspective, but you're right. The Giants are a big market team. They have a lot of money to spend. A lot of their older guys are starting to get the bucket and not be as good for them. So that's probably a good reasoning for them. Moving on to another big baseball top before we get into the awards, Tony La Russa, of course, is now the manager of the White Sox, but it came out that he got arrested for a DUI last month. And it's really interesting because La Russa is a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall of Fame manager back in 2014. He's won three World Series, one of the A's, two of the Cardinals. He's an incredible legendary manager, but he has now his second DUI. He's the oldest manager in baseball for the White Sox for a young, energetic team. So people are already starting to discuss that this is a very weird fit. And now the DUI on his belt, is he going to last long in Chicago, do you guys think? I think just by nature of how old he is, he can't last that long in Chicago. <laughs> like not not to not to take too much of a cheap shot at Tony Larusa there, but I mean it made what I already thought and a lot of people thought was a bad hiring look even worse, and just a bad look for the White Sox too. It comes out that they knew about it. It happened one day. They find out the day before they hire him, and 
Jerry Reisendorf goes ahead and hires his his buddy anyways when I think there may have been better candidates for the job or certainly younger candidates for the job who uh, maybe could have connected to the younger generation of players better. And and I don't want to say like Tony La Russa is a bad guy or anything. We were talking pre-show, Ben, um, being a former A's manager, remembering all the uh, he's done a lot of great things for the community. And I mean, I don't think he's a bad guy. He made a bad choice, obviously a dumb choice. And he deserves to be criticized for it. Um, but I mean, people do dumb things and I think he could still be a fine manager. Um, but it, it's definitely, it's a very tough look. And I the quote coming out too, where he tried to like say he was a hall of famer to like get out of it. That is just even worse, but I don't know. I mean, I think he could still be a decently successful manager this year. I just think it will be an interesting managerial thing because his first round of the go, I mean, he was basically a general manager who pioneered a lot of, I mean, not general manager who pioneered a lot of things in baseball, like the whole idea of the closer and a lot, a lot of things in baseball that are still seen today. It'll just be interesting to see if he pioneered at, at his age, he, he ends up pioneering another another part of the game but one thing that i one thing that i think was just as maybe controversial about the move as larusso is i actually wasn't so sure about rick renteria getting fired i mean white Sox seem to be heading the right direction although they did seeing the design game for the wild card game against against the haze and having like what happened with like them having to expend a lot of their bullpen arms i feel like it wasn't didn't seem like it was fully his fault with having to like mix and play a lot of the bullpen arms the way he did. I mean, one thing that kind of got the best of it was also that new rule of the three batter minimum. So I really think the White Sox, the White Sox really didn't need to make that dramatic of a move this offseason with getting rid of rent Rick Renteria. So that to me was almost as much of a shock as the hiring of Tony LaRusse, if I'm going to be honest. It also adds insult to injury that Rick Renteria was second in manager of the year voting because he was just that good for the White Sox who had not been to the playoffs since I believe, what, 2008 or so? He was pretty good for them. And you honestly can't really blame him for not utilizing the bullpen as much because the bullpen in the first place was not that good. They were actually pretty lucky because they had Garrett Crochet come up and pitch like a beast even though he has like a less than a year of experience under his belt. And then Colome was also a very effective closer. So I don't even think he did that bad with the bullpen, yet he was just fired because of that. And that doesn't really even seem like the best reason to fire them. And for me, I, I think he almost kind of seemed like a like a placeholder manager. Like they just had him in there to kind of to hold the job and, and you know, develop the guy, develop the young guys during a rebuild period. And I mean, I think they probably if they were planning to fire him all along, whatever, once they got good, they I mean, maybe they didn't know they were going to be this good in 2020, but you probably should have fired him after last year when you go 72 and 89. I mean, it is it's it just makes you look dumb when a guy is like a manager of the year candidate and you just laid him off to hire your best friend. Definitely a little bit shady and just a very strange time for the White Sox, especially since Jose Abreu just won MVP <laughs> as well. So it should be a time of celebration, yet it's just a time of weirdness for the White Sox, but moving on to the awards and other managers, Kevin Cash for the Tampa Bay Rays won the manager of the year in the AL, Don Mattingly, the manager of the Miami Marlins, won in the National League. And first I want to talk about Kevin Cash. Obviously, Cash during the regular season was excellent. 
Maybe not so much in Game 6 of the World Series when he pulled out Blake Snell too early. Luckily, they do not put emphasis on that. But I was a little surprised that Cash ended up winning it, not because that he's not a deserving manager, but because the Rays were already a good team. They won 96 games last year. And then you have managers such as Rick Renteria bring the White Sox back to the playoffs, and the same for Charlie Montoya as well. Even Dusty Baker received a third-place vote, and he had to deal with everything going off the Astros that he was not a part of the scandal-wise. So it seemed like there was just much more deserving candidates than Cash in my regard. Not that he isn't a great manager, not that he shouldn't have been high up there, but there seemed to have been other choices. I do think it's a little odd in the sense that, like you said, Adam, the Rays were already established and he did take them another step forward, but it wasn't like a night and day transformation like we saw with the Blue Jays or the White Sox. And usually those kind of transformations do result in winning this award. We saw that in the NL with Don Mattingly and his Marlins. But I, I overall really wasn't surprised to see Kevin Cash take it, uh, take the award. Just what a great baseball mind he is. And then maybe Maybe the, there wasn't that night and day transformation, but perhaps getting some bonus points for overcoming the juggernaut Yankees and winning that division would, would be maybe what made the difference. I just think overall his ability to put in the right pieces with the raised bullpen and work with this young core of guys and get just enough to lead them all the way to the World Series when they really weren't even in favor. I mean, look, look back at where we were predicting the Rays. While they were already a well-established team, I feel like he kind of brought them this season from – good to great because if you look at our predictions for the season none of us predicted the Rays even winning the division even coming close to winning the division let alone but his ability to put the right pieces there to show how his team was how he was the kind of manager met for a 60 game sprint like we kind of saw in him and just his new inventiveness with his with his use of things such as the opener and law and just longer inning relievers I think there's almost no reason why he wouldn't he wouldn't deserve it even though he wasn't maybe as much of the turnaround trend that we've seen of managers of the year of the past so i actually personally think he was very deserving of it kevin cash almost seems to be like an old school new school manager because he'll put wherever someone is needed because he has a, a very unconventional bullpen he has the opener which is very new school but he, he can use his relievers in any situation. He's not afraid to use his relievers a couple innings at a time. He's not afraid to go to his relievers like three days in a row. And that's very useful. He, however, he did he isn't enforced by the front office and he took out his starters early. So that's something that's a bit of a point on him. But at the same time with the order, the batting order, which is a weak point for the Rays, he utilized everyone in the right spot. He used platoons. He made changes throughout the game. That's something that we don't see anymore. We don't see a lot of defensive replacements. Don't see a lot of platoons. So he's bringing back some old school stuff while also bringing some of the new school stuff that the new front office is doing. And that kind of resourcefulness is, is even more impressive uh, just given kind of the lack of resources that he's given with the raise budget, you know, constantly being one of the lower spending teams in the league that yeah he he does a better job than anybody i'd say of you know shuffling uh those rotations and, and those lineups but yeah like you said too adam taking the pitchers out a little bit too early sometimes maybe uh falling victim to his own genius there and, and trying to get a little too cute yeah but i mean one move in like the world series it's like it's just really difficult people think that should like define one's reputation to seeing what he did in this season and 
everything. And then now moving on, speaking of, like you were saying, Henry, of low spending teams and things with limited resources, I think Don Mattingly, given what he was able to do with the Marlins, who everyone was predicting a last place team and they make it to the division round. I mean, what the Marlins did, he, he's nothing, nothing short of deserving of National League Manager of the Year, in my view. You guys agree with me? I think the best statistic I saw about the Marlins making the playoffs was that they had a negative 43 run differential. And there's actually a new, I don't know if you guys watch Fullest Baseball or the audience does, but that's a great show on YouTube, a great YouTube channel. And that's just shows like all these like hard stats and the show like how the Marlins were just at such odds because they of course acquired COVID. They brought off so many of their prospects up went earlier than anyone would have thought. They had to play 57 games in 54 days, and they were also 10 and four in seven inning games as well. So they came through so much adversity throughout the season. And then they also go to the playoffs. They unfortunately, Henry, they beat the Cubs, which is not the best look, but it's, it was just amazing how far they went. And I don't think they're going to make the playoffs next year. Maybe not at the 16 game spot. It's, it's tough to say, but it does seem like they're a bit one-year wonder. It does seem like they played to the pandemic. But nonetheless, Mattingly, who has always strove for a World Series, he's never gotten it yet. He didn't get it with the Dodgers, of course. But to see him win the award now, that's a very good look for him. Absolutely. And and definitely a well-deserving award. Take it to a well-deserving guy to take home the award there. No, no argument for me on this one. Um, and just, yeah, what he was able to do with all that adversity, like you mentioned, Adam, not to mention the adversity of just being the Marlins in general. And I, I do agree with you too. I think it may be a little bit of a one hit wonder uh, and just kind of the anomaly of, of having that bad of a run differential and still being able to make the playoffs. I think that's something that we probably won't see again in a 162 game season. That's some of the, the quirky randomness that we got in this crazy 2020 year, but still just all things considered, I think what they were able to accomplish and nobody expecting anything from them. Uh, all the props in the world to Don Mattingly. The only argument that I would have had with this one uh, is Tingler not getting it uh, with San Diego coming in second place here and, and him having such a great turnaround season for the Padres as well and everything they were able to accomplish. But I mean, certainly I don't think they were the long shots that the Marlins were to make the playoffs. They, I mean, they were not favorites to be there by any means, but I don't think people were expecting anything from the Marlins. So props to Don Mattingly. Yeah. And it's possible that could, I mean, this could be, I mean, like you're saying, even if it is a one year wonder, one hit wonder, he still could have, I still think he's now maybe improved his like managerial reputation from like, after his like somewhat bitter exit or something with like, or in, in some ways shocking exit with the Dodgers. It certainly helps him. It's certainly a good look for the Marlins, especially since he had, several years of losing seasons and it's hard to be helped when you're the Marlins in that regard, but now to see them take it to the playoffs, well, he could perhaps extend his tenure with the Marlins. If he chooses to go elsewhere at some day and still continue to be a manager, he's, he's definitely improved his career. But I do like the fact, Henry, that you mentioned Tinker as well, because this is also someone who's a relatively new manager and the Padres were still seen as a team that had a pretty good chance, but probably a year or two away from contention. And then, just everything went together. They had Tatis, who was up there in MVP. Same for Manny Machado. They had Will Myers as a bat, bat season. They had Daniel Slamet also just emerge out of nowhere. And he always had a great strikeout rate, but he finally put it all together. So a lot of pieces worked for the Padres. And 
he kind of embodied the idea of let the kids play, the whole Fernando Tatis idea. And the Padres are now one of the more exciting teams in baseball, and Tindler definitely deserves some credit for that. Yeah, it's very much at, at the forefront of that turnaround. And, and I mean, you got to give the manager credit for them getting there earlier than you expected and, and getting the most out of those young guys. And how I'm sure he has been very important in the development of guys like Fernando Tatis um, and then Chris Paddock, too, as well on the pitcher side. Some of the, a lot of young, exciting guns out there in San Diego, the manager included. Uh, like you said, a new, a new manager in the game. And he's happy to see the happy to see young guys succeed. Yeah, I, I can agree more, but I mean, he's got, I mean, the Padres aren't going away anytime soon, so he's got more years down the line to get that, hopefully. And speaking of teams and players that are not going away anytime soon, let's take a look at the Rookie of the Year winners. It was Kyle Lewis of the Seattle Mariners and Devin Williams of the Milwaukee Brewers. Kyle Lewis, I was a little bit surprised that one at first, just because there was so much hype about Luis Robert before the season began. He was a 30-30 player in the minors the year before. He had all the tools. He had a great first half. And then when you look at the stats, he's barely an above-average hitter. He batted 227. He had a 101 weighted runs rate of plus, which means he was just 1% better league average as a hitter. He was a great fielder, but that was his more bread and butter. But he also was nearly a 10-10 player, so he still deserved credit. But Kyle Lewis, that's also a great thing for baseball, too, because he's the first... Rookie of the Year for the Mariners since 2001. Both him and Williams are African-Americans, and this is the first time in, I believe, at least 30 years or so where two African-Americans won the Rookie of the Year award, which is great. And Lewis himself had a great season as well. He had 11 homers, five stolen bases, and a 1.7 fan graphs war, so he was excellent. And I think the competition in the Rookie Year was a little bit weak in the AL this year, but Lewis is deserving of the award, of course. I'm glad you mentioned the kind of weak competition in the AL for this award. I, that's the point I was going to make too, that it almost feels, I don't want to take anything away from Kyle Lewis. He had a good season, but with there wasn't really a, a standout rookie that we had to give it no like 2017 Aaron judge or anything where it was a slam dunk winner. So I, I don't want to be too mean, but I almost want to say Kyle Lewis won it by default. Um, but I actually was still kind of surprised to see that happen. I, I picked Lewis Robert to win it. Uh, and I think a lot of people were expecting him certainly after the way he started the season, he was like the best player in baseball two weeks into the year. Um, but I didn't realize that he really did kind of fall off a cliff for the end of the season and ended up batting 233 on the year. So pretty ugly there. Like you said, Adam Lewis was like 266. So I think deserving uh, for him to take it home, but yeah, I, going forward, I think Luis Robert is is the player to keep your eye on. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll agree there that Kyle Lewis, I mean, it's interesting. I, I remember the first few weeks of the season, I was like hyped on Kyle Lewis, and I was like, man, this guy's a real superstar. He was breakdown. Yes, his stats may have been a little bit underwhelming from what you'd expect from a rookie of the year in terms of 262 batting average. And yes, maybe Luis Robert was – the more exciting bat to watch because I gotta say just seeing Luis Roberts bat such a young at such a young age and how he already seemed to have such natural power and everything it was was great but then when you but then the stats speak for it and speak for it and everything and I think I think definitely with Kyle Lewis part of the reason why he wasn't maybe getting as much of like 
the hype that maybe he that he, maybe he deserved at the same time was given to the fact that he plays for a team like the Seattle Mariners. So I'm so I'm, I'm so I'm actually when I when I look at him when I look when I dig when you dig deeper in with the stats 1.7 so above average WAR he's overall I'm overall I'm overall now more in agreement even though I I too initially thought Luis Robert just given all the hype around him was rookie of the year and then speaking of in terms of playing for maybe less uh, or less recognized teams Devin Williams for the Brewers getting National League rookie of the year I mean this I mean he was I mean he was he was great but let's be let's be real none of us like I feel like he was kind of a less talked about name too the fact that he has 0.33 ERA through 27 innings pitched this season I mean that's nothing short that's nothing short of remarkable and I'm actually a little bit surprised that he that there wasn't as much talk surrounding him throughout the season it seemed like towards the end of the season he was starting to be talked about more just because he went on an incredible run having a 0.33 era even in just a 60 game season is still incredible so and actually henry you and me had a conversation over twitter recently about david williams how he maybe allows josh Hader to be expendable because the brewers continue to have great relievers and he could be the next guy up and he's just so young and is there under team control for so long. And he was so dominant too. Besides the ERA, he struck up batters at a ridiculous weight rate, almost two batters per inning. It was a 17.67 strikeouts per nine innings. just ridiculous. And he's the first reliever to win the rookie of the year award since 2011 back when I, I think it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was Craig Kimber who lasted it. I know Natalie Feliz, I think, did the year before, but Craig Kimbrell, who was the last one. And that young man is an absolute beast. Uh, and and I think that, you know, like you said, Adam, somebody, uh, the first reliever to win it in that long, just I think speaks volumes to the kind of season that he had. You said a .33 ERA. He gave up one home run the entire season. Um, like you said, striking out almost two batters an inning. He is insanely good. And, yeah, I think you could – very easily get rid of Josh Hader. Not to say you have to. I mean, there's no problem with having multiple lockdown arms in your bullpen. But, I mean, when you have a backup like this, Devin Williams, you could hand the ball and make him the closer. Uh, I think you could certainly – I think who, uh, there was another guy we were having a conversation who was part of our conversation on Twitter, Adam, who said the Brewers have a lot of other needs. So maybe it makes sense to kind of move the big name and Hader and, and try and plug some of those holes elsewhere, especially when you've got such a young stud to, to fall back on. Yeah, and and I mean he, he he was the real biggest he he could be argued as one of the bigger impact players this year too. Given like if you look at the rest of the Brewers pitching, I mean their stats were pretty underwhelming. The rest of the pitching stat, well, other than I'm um, other than I think Harder's pitching stats were okay this year. Was he injured most of the year? I don't really remember, but like most of but like the Brewers pitching, I looked at it overall, and yeah, Devin Williams was was one of the only real effective arms. So I think he was a big reason to why they even got to the playoffs in the first place. It would not be fair to mention the NL Rookie of the Year without mentioning Jake Cronenworth, who came in third, and now it's Boehm actually just slid it right ahead. They both actually tied for 74 points, but Jake Cronenworth was maybe seen as a favorite. He's not the most powerful guy, but he played all around the infield. He also stole a good amount of bases, was a very elite fielder, and that was kind of a nifty pick for the NL Rookie of the Year, but obviously Williams 
was just so dominant as a reliever, even at not as a closer, he was just too hard to ignore. And at the end of the day, he does seem more deserving. But I think a few people were shocked that Cronenworth did not win. Absolutely. Just being the position player who played more than, than anybody else really on this list. I think that definitely gave him a leg up. And I was rooting for Devin Williams, but I, I expected Cronenworth to take it home personally. And you should compare the three finalists. Uh, you got Williams as a relief pitcher who hardly ever win it. And then Alec Baum was up for like a month, I feel like. I, I was surprised that he was a finalist. Granted, he was really good in his short time up. But I, I mean, I thought Cronenworth was almost as good for a lot longer of a time. So I was expecting him to win it. That, that was a surprise to me. I was too, but at the same time, a lot of the time it's like the breakthroughs in the end. I think I think that tend to ultimately get a lot of time. But yeah, it was a little bit hard to come with because I mean the fact that he was also he already showed like sometimes it takes guys a little longer to develop like their amazing fielding abilities. But he already, I mean, he already also showed great fielding abilities too as a rookie, which was pretty impressive. So. But I think he definitely, I mean, he definitely has a great future in the game down the line for sure. Yeah, they definitely, all these rookies, of course, have great futures ahead of them. And it was a pretty fun pit to see that Williams came on top and Cronenworth and Bone were, were just up there. Also, so one person who got a down ballot vote was Sisto Sanchez, who was excellent down the stretch. He was really brought the Marlins to the playoffs. He helped them, unfortunately, Henry beat the Cubs. And he was just a stud as well. So and he's actually, I think, up for... I think rookie of the year next year as well. He could be eligible, so that could help him out, and he could be a maybe dark horse favorite. Yeah, he that's another young beast, uh, hard throwing, a young pitcher. Dude is flirting with triple digits, uh, and he absolutely dominated my Cubs in that wild card round. No, no argument for me here. Um, and I believe you are correct, Adam. I think his rookie status is still intact. Uh, so I wonder then if, if you're like a guy who doesn't qualify for rookie of the year this year, but you still get votes because you were that good. Could you in theory be like a back-to-back -back rookie of the year? I think you can. Yeah. I think there was one guy who went like eighth and then fourth, which is hilarious. I forget his name, but it, it's really weird to think about another upcoming 2021 possible rookie of the year candidate is Randy Arozarena, who already won uh, ALCS MVP and he could also win rookie of the year next year. I mean, I think he'd definitely be the favorite in a lot of people's uh, a lot a lot of people's charts. Yep, down the line. I mean, that's what's been so great about the game of baseball this season is yet another. I mean, although this season, like we we're, I mean, yeah, another another great young core of guys. As the as the game is still evolving with more with more young players, and we're in an era where like young guys are really taking center stage. There's enough great rookies. It's great to also have enough, just enough great rookies to to add to that for sure. There's also more exciting gun players that are emerging in baseball. One of them is the better Bieber, and that is Shane Bieber. He won the AL Triple Crown, which was incredible. He was already amazing last year. He had like 250 strikeouts. I think he was top five in the AL Cy Underworld, and he won it unanimously, totally deserved it. A 1.63 ERA and 77 to 30 innings pitched. So he was excellent. I'm really happy that Trevor Bauer won the NL. I think, honestly, Trevor Bauer might be my – favorite player in baseball. He's hilarious. He's just a clown. He just trolls everyone. He just talks 
he talks badly. He'll make fun of anyone who gets in his way. He's just great for the game. And he also almost single-handedly brought the Reds back to the playoffs. And he, he was excellent down the stretch. He's very, very deserving this award. He himself had around like 1.73 ERA and 73 innings pitch. So both of these two candidates seem very deserving. And I am very happy with these pits. I'm twisting around in my seat here, man. I think I think Trevor Bauer might be my least favorite player in baseball, Ooh. and I, his personality just completely rubs me the wrong way. And and I get like why so many people do love him, and and I get that he is he is good for the game. I nobody can argue that, and he is a tremendously talented pitcher. And I think he probably was deserving of the NL Cy Young and. Full disclosure, I, I am very salty that you, Darvish, didn't win it. I think Darvish had a great year as well. Um, but, I mean, it's hard to argue with the Triple Crown. Uh, I will try to a little bit, um, but I have no arguments for Shane Bieber. I mean, that one was obvious slam dunk. I think he should have got some MVP votes. But I guess that's probably why you have the have the Cy Young Award in the first place. Um, but I'll hold my tongue on Bauer for another second and, and let Ben get a word in first. I got to say, okay, so we have we have two opposite sides of the spectrum on Bauer. I got to say, it's interesting. I wasn't as big a fan of him last year, seeing what he did in Cleveland, like but like when he left the inning, throwing the ball over the fence. But then after seeing what he did this year, I think Trevor Bauer is one of those guys, he grew on me this year, seeing what he's done for the game of baseball, seeing how he's just been an absolute stud this season. I just – I, I just really like to see pitchers and pitch, pitchers who put that who put like the who put the Reds on the map for sure. I mean, I would argue that I mean the Reds had more good pitchers than just him though. They did have Luis Castillo was also good and like Sonny Gray was good too. So well, I, I wouldn't say it was just him, but he was definitely the main factor that carried the Reds there. But I just want to point out it's interesting two Ohio pitchers win, winning it all. I don't ever remember I don't remember that happening of two pitch of two guys from the same like sort of region both winning awards Cy Young MVP like and that's certainly I'm sure happened quite a few times but I just don't remember that really happening when, when with two guys of the same region taking home kind of one award I don't remember two people in Ohio ever being successful <laughs> <laughs> it is nice for the state of Ohio of course I mean they they haven't had as much luck since 2016 when the Indians made the World Series and blew a 3-1 lead. So to have two pitchers from their state win, that has to feel pretty good. And also just look at where these pitchers came from. I mean, Bauer kind of was in the middle of no man's land and Dimebats organization and started to develop with the Indians and then was up and down to not then became the ace of the Red Staff. And then you look at Shane Bieber, who just six years ago was still in college and he wasn't, I think he was like, uh, he didn't get drafted out of high school. So to see him be at the forefront of major league pitching elite and he's only been in the big leagues for just over two years so he's well deserving and easily one of the best pitchers in the game and if i can if i may for a second yes. make the case uh for darvish over bauer on um, and, and it is a tough case to make because triple crown bauer that's that's tough to argue against but what i would say is that the era whip k's were all kind of close they were in that in the same area for darvish is bauer bauer was better in each of those categories but i think some of the underlying numbers may have backed up darvish's success a little bit more his fip his fielding independent pitching i believe was close to a full run lower than uh bowers 
perhaps suggesting there may have been a little bit of luck in Bauer's low ERA, which, I mean, you don't have a 173 ERA without a little bit of luck. You probably don't have a 201 ERA without a little bit either. Uh, but Trevor Bauer um, had a had a much higher, uh, or I'm sorry, you Darvish had a much higher BABIP as well. Uh, so batting average on balls in play, very low for Trevor Bauer, perhaps suggesting that a couple of balls that normally would have been hits didn't get down for him. And just making this case out loud, I realize I do sound a little bit desperate uh, with those numbers. Um, but something that I think is more of a legitimate case for Darvish uh, leading the majors and wins, the first Japanese player to ever do so, and then winning the division for the Cubs. thats I think that's another big thing. That's supposed to be a tiebreaker. Uh, if uh, Maybe it wasn't a tie because Bauer's stats were that much better. But, I mean, winning the division is supposed to count for something. The Reds made it as well, but they were kind of a beneficiary of the expanded playoffs. Um, but then also Darvish uh, was the NL leader in war for pitchers. So I, I think that is, is another argument that could have helped him. But I mean, certainly I'm, I'm not really that mad about Bauer taking it home. He had a fantastic season. So I, I can only biasedly argue against it. Well, I am happy that you brought up, of course, the U Darvish argument because he was, of course, a really big contender. He was that someone. It's honestly so refreshing to see someone who was just insanely dominant his first few years to the Rangers, then he fell from grace, then he also lost the World Series to the Dodgers in 2017, and now he's he's back, and he's just as good. Maybe he'll turn it around once again. He'll be consistent, and I think it's going to be a nice road for the Cubs who now have a pair of aces and him and Hendricks. I mean, Hendricks is already kind of an ace, but losing Lester and now gaining a rejuvenated U Darvish, that's a really good luck for that team. Absolutely. I'm very happy for him and, and all the struggles that he's had the last couple of years and just kind of hearing quotes from him too, where he, you could tell when he was down, like how badly he felt that he wasn't able to perform like he was being paid. And so great to see Darvish turn around and, and just seems like an awesome guy. He, he didn't know that he was going to get a bonus in his contract from getting second place in the voting still. And so he tweeted out that he was going to donate the money, but I love me some you Darvish and I hope he can, I, I'm pretty confident that he is an ace moving forward. I mean, I don't think he's going to have a 201 ERA next year, but I would bet on sub three. That is certainly a possibility. And we should also mention some of the down ballot votes for the Cy Underworld winner. To me, a couple of pitchers that seemed just a little bit out of place for the AL, it was Chris Bissett. And he was, he was that someone this year. He definitely deserved some votes, but being over Dylan Bundy, being over Liam Hendricks and Framber Valdez, that seemed a bit too high for him. No offense to you, Ben. I know Bissett was a great pitcher all year long. Then nationally, Zach Gallen, somehow over Clayton Kershaw, somehow over Wheeler, and also tying with Hendricks. So that seems very out of place. Like he doesn't really deserve to be in that mix, but he had still an excellent season. Pitched to a 2.75 ERA and 72 innings pitched, so he was a great pitcher as well. But just a little bit out of whack, it seemed like. I do think, though, I will say for the Chris Bassett thing, I'm going to argue, yes, maybe he was a little too high being over Hendricks, but at the same time, I think he was also a little bit underrated this season, what he did, seeing how, like, I think he was the one he was the one ace pitcher that really provided any consistency for our pitching rotation this year in our starting pitch. And that's huge. I mean, it's it's tough when he doesn't have anyone with like real starting pitch, but he was the one pitcher who you could actually expect to give you five or six solid innings 
every outing that he came out. I mean, he didn't even even with the play with the playoffs, all our starters faltered. They, they barely gave us four innings, including him. But he came. Or actually, he gave us one. He gave us one solid outing in the playoffs too. He's the one pitcher who gave us a solid starting outing in the playoffs. But yeah, the rest of our pitchers. So I, I think his team value cannot be underestimated. So I might argue that. But yeah, it's true. Maybe he shouldn't have been too far ahead of guys like Hendricks because then Hendricks, then again, Hendricks, his teammate, I mean, his team value was just as huge with how he got through those late innings too as a closer. And I think Ben makes a good point too that maybe the the steady compiler is is a little bit more, even more valuable in today's offensive environment where teams are popping off, scoring 15 runs like it's nothing, where you need guys who are going to be able to eat innings and, and give you consistency like Chris Bassett. But I still was uh, surprised as well to see him place that high, Adam. I, I didn't think he totally deserved it. I don't want to hate him, hate on him too much because there definitely is value in that skill set, especially with a team that is, is is getting a lot of struggles from their other starting pitchers. Um, but I, I thought Zach Gallen had a pretty good year for the Diamondbacks. That one didn't really surprise me all that much. Um, but I think it, it just goes to show how great – I wanted to mention too that how great the NL pitching was that – we haven't even talked about Jacob DeGrom, who is who's going yeah. to the Cy Young three-peat. And, and he had another great year. And he's, I mean, not only like in our show, but kind of in, in the voting, maybe a little bit of an afterthought. Even like Clayton Kershaw, I mean, a little bit of an afterthought, despite how he how he did a lot of things with his legacy. I mean, his stat his stats might not be like as as like as amazing as like the Clayton Kershaw stats. No, but if any pitcher had the kind of stats he had this year, that would still be considered a big accomplishment for them. So even the fact that Clayton Kershaw who finally solidified his World Series leg, he was not in the talk was something for sure. And I think also, Henry, you mentioned how deep this NL Cy Young Award race was. Of course, Kershaw being in there once again, very deserving, but Denilson Lament placing fourth, and he finally put it all together. He finished over Freed and Burns, and the two of them were maybe even seen as coming fourth and fifth respectively, so Lament to jump over them was very impressive. And then you have Devin Williams who received three votes for fifth place. I mean, he was very deserving and it's nice to see that more relievers such as Williams and Hendricks getting these Cyan Award votes because they of course are so crucial to the team. Absolutely. I, I love seeing some of those more unheralded guys kind of getting the recognition they deserve. Lamette, a great season. Uh, Corbin Burns as well, dude who was not getting any type of Cy Young hype heading into the year and pitched very well, like you said. And, and kind of just overall, I think that baseball writers did a really great job with the awards there. I mean, I'm mad at the Darvish Bauer things. I'm a Cubs fan. But overall, I think they got most, if not all, of these right. I'm going to be honest, though. MVP, when I look at the stats, they got it right. So now we're going to move to MVP if you guys are ready. Well, so they, I guess they got it right with the stats, but neither of the two guys were the guys that I really predicted would be MVP, to be honest, in my in my prediction. So stat-wise, yes, but when it came to things like player value, like for AL, I thought DJ LeMahieu was my pick this year for finally getting MVP. And then the, and then the NL, I just thought Mookie Betts provided overall, like better all-around value this year. So I actually saw Mookie Betts, Mookie Betts get getting it this year, but then looking at Freddie Freeman, how he's like been underrated with his same throughout his career and how he hasn't gotten it. I think it wasn't a it wasn't a terrible pick, and I shouldn't be complaining too. I feel like I'm a little over 
complaining about the about the two picks for MVP because there's not there was nothing really wrong with either of those two picks of, of having Jose Abreu in the AL and Freddie Freeman in the NL for those of you who don't know. I completely agree with you, Ben, because both. Abreu and Freeman were incredibly deserving. It's nice to see two powerful first basemen win the award. But if you're looking at all-around players, Jose Ramirez was a 10-10 player, which is very impressive in a 60-game span. He also had a very high OPS. I think it was around 993. And he just also led the Indians to the playoffs as well. I mean, they really don't have, didn't have too many offensive contributors this year. So he really led the pack. He even was better than Lindor in terms of offense. And then Betts, of course, was at Slim this year as well. But maybe just being on the Dodgers and how everyone was so well around the team, perhaps he lost a little bit of slack there because he wasn't the only contributor. But this is Freeman's Braves team. I know everyone loves Acuna, and maybe he has the heart, he's the fire of the team, but Freeman's the heart and soul of the team. He's been there since he was around like 19 years old. He's 30 years old, finally won MVP, and very deserving as well. And when you look at his stats, he finished about, it was something like 170 points higher in terms of OPS. He had 1,102, which is completely absurd. So I think Freeman was my original pick, but Ramirez was my pick in the AL. And LeMahieu obviously deserving as well, but Ramirez definitely deserves some love too. Almost a bit of a throwback, too, to see the slugging first baseman get all the love. That's like an early 2000s baseball theme. And I, I kind of was expecting more of the all-around players to, to take it home as well. I was, I was probably thinking Mookie Betts in the NL, and I liked Jose Ramirez in the AL as well. But I think both Abreu and Freeman have kind of flown under the radar for a long time and, and just been such great, steady contributors. And then this year, each of them taking it another step further and, and kind of just being – very, very well-deserving MVP candidates. And, and yeah, the numbers kind of jumping off the page like Adam was describing. So I'm certainly not mad about it. I'm a little bit surprised, uh, I suppose. But, I mean, when you look at the numbers, it, it makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I also look at some of the other numbers. One of the skepticisms people had about Jose Abreu was maybe his feeling, maybe being a little below average stuff. But then when I look at it, actually, he had a plus – he had a plus fielding – he had plus – sorry, plus 13, like, defensive war, something that was really good. I mean, no, he didn't play every day at first base. He played less first base. But he – but, I mean, seeing that he, he was able to put up some great fielding stats too and just seeing that – and just seeing the consistency he's provided and the fact that he's the core of a great White Sox slap. I think part of the reason why maybe maybe I, maybe I was a little underestimating him getting it was just seeing how great the rest of this White Sox – batting order was doing this year i mean i couldn't I, I actually i actually think it's great he finally got recognized in all these years it's funny he was he's always been underrated i think for different reasons too like all these years this year he was underrated because of being in such a good white Sox lineup like i mentioned other years he's been underrated because he's played for when the white Sox have been bad and usually players on like the losing teams don't get much recognition you are right that both both of you guys are right that both these players have flown under the radar of course, with Jose Abreu, he actually also won Rookie of the Year back in 2014. He's been very steady, usually having around 30 home runs and 100 RBIs. People have knocked him on on-base percentage, but his career average is now 350. So that's still above average. People have knocked him on fielding, but he's a first baseman to get away with that. Then Freeman, too. And we were writing this in the doc, but is he on his way to a Hall of Fame career? Because... He's always been consistent. He's always batted around 280, 290, even 300 plus. 
hits 25 plus home runs. He's not your conventional 40 home runner bust first baseman, but he's kind of seems like a John Olerroyd or Mark Grace that just keeps sticking it out there for the long haul. I, I love the Mark Grace comparison. I think that is a good skill set comparison. And I would agree. I think he is on pace uh, to get there now, but I think just kind of by nature of the way he plays, he's going to have to do it for longer than, than other guys may who have, you know, those like 60 home run seasons and have a couple of those versus Freddie Freeman is going to have to put together solid seasons for a long time. Uh, I think he ultimately will do it, but I was interested in seeing this question in the document uh, before our show. So I, I looked on baseball references, hall of fame, uh, predictability met meter, and just to give you some player comps of guys not yet eligible for the hall who are kind of in that same realm as Freddie Freeman, uh, they actually have Jose Abreu three spots ahead of him, uh, 51st among not yet eligible players and probability to make it in. Uh, we have Josh Donaldson right there, Matt Kemp, Troy Tulowitzki, Chris Davis with a C, uh, and then Francisco Lindor, Anthony Rendon. Carlos Gonzalez, Chris Bryant, uh, all kind of in that ballpark. And I don't know. I don't know if those, if many of those names are screaming Hall of Fame at me. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's guys at different points of their career as well. And, and Freddie Freeman still has a lot of years to put together great seasons. And that's the other thing. Freddie Freeman, I mean, a lot of those guys you mentioned, they've all had some down seasons lately. But Freddie Freeman hasn't really. I've looked through his stats. And before I was a little, like, skeptical about like him having that much power and i was like yeah he's not like you said before not your typical first like power power hitting first baseman who puts up a ton of home runs but then looking at it he still does have power i mean he hit 38 home runs last year so that's always a good year i mean i know last year was a year of home runs a lot of guys hit a lot of home runs but still 38 was was still above average as far as home run numbers and i just and yeah i just think his numbers i mean his numbers definitely speak for him being being a hall of famer already and kind of value he's provided and so i just i'm actually a little bit shocked that there's that he, that he was not quite as high on the meter but i hope he continues to grow up grow up to that whatever baseball reference says <laughs> As a well-rounded hitter, it does seem like that Freeman will continue this pace. He's 30 years old now, so that definitely factors in. But he's also been having 100 RBIs, having 150-plus hits each year, batting 280 to over 300. Those are sustainable skills. It's not just all or nothing power, all or nothing speed, where that can fluctuate from season to season. He's relatively consistent, and it's nice to see him kind of be this almost unheralded Joey Votto, or someone in the same region as Anthony Rizzo, someone who's just always there, always producing. And maybe he's not a first ballot Hall of Famer, but this guy, this could be the guy who wins over some voters when it's all said and done. And you read my mind with Rizzo, too, when you were saying consistent first baseman, which I think Freddie Freeman's the, the better version of Anthony Rizzo, the guy who gives you the same stats every year, but having his stats are better than Rizzo's. Um, Definitely better than Joey Votto's these days. But yeah, in that mold of the Joey Votto MVP days, he's he's a beast. And and I think he's going to continue to be a beast. I, I love your point, Adam, that it's it, his skill set definitely looks like it, it holds up over time. It, it's not anything crazy. It's not your your 65 home run year that it's going to not you know be repeatable. It's He's hit like this his entire career, and he has all the tools to make him a high average guy. And 
I think being a great on base player as well helps that too, that, you know, he's working counts and he's taking good at bats and he's going to put up a good batting average. That just about wraps it up from the exit VLO podcast tonight. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Adam Cohen alongside Henry Winkelkank and Ben Rossi. And until next week, we should be back at our usual Thursday, 7 p.m. time, but have a good one and good night.